0: So, if you could produce an elixir to improve the health of millions of Americans, and if you could make it available without charge, what value do you think our society would place on it? Uh, Furthermore, if research conclusively proved that when consumed just once a week, this elixir would reduce mortality by up to 30% over. A 15 year period, how urgently would we make it public? Well, the good news is that your very presence in this room proves that you've taken the elixir. It's called church. Professor Tyler Vanderweel, who is a professor of epidemiology at Harvard University. Epidemiology, epidemic, epidemiology, the study of how often diseases occur in different groups of people, and why? Professor Vanderweel has done research building on more than 20 years of work in this area, and his studies have concluded that attending religious services at least once a week versus not at all show a significantly lower risk of dying over the next decade and a half. His bottom line? Church attendance is correlated with longer life and a sense of meaning. Worshiping in community rather than private spirituality or solitary practice strongly predicts health. Dr. Vanderwiel says that there's something essential about communal religious participation. There's something about belonging to a faith community that matters. Something powerful appears to take place. And it enhances health. And it's quite different from solitary spirituality. Dr. VanderWeele writes, Where else today do we find a community with a shared moral and spiritual vision, a sense of accountability wherein the central task of members is to love and care for one another? The combination of the spiritual teachings and spiritual relationships and spiritual practices over time, week after week, taken together, gradually alters behavior, creates meaning, alleviates loneliness, and shapes a person in ways too numerous to document. And then the good professor closes his essay with this question, which he doesn't answer. Who could possibly conceive of such an elixir One that stands to change society in ways small and large, subtle and profound. Now, who could that be? I know, Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every question at Windsor Road Christian Church. (laughs) Jesus, who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All of this explains our current teaching series on Christian community, the fellowship of the King, what the Bible has to say about community in Christ. We believe that the Lord Jesus created this community called church. And as we share His love and His care and His words and His thoughts, and as we model His life by His Spirit We flourish together, even amidst our differences, especially amidst our differences. See, the miracle of Christianity is that Christ's church consisted of people from such a variety of backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities, people with no other reason to come together except for their shared commitment and love for Christ. And in the first century, this mix included slave, free, academic, non-academic, skilled, unskilled, business, non-business, Greek, Jew, rich, poor, male, female, young, old, married, single, citizen, non-citizen. All came together out of love for Christ. And Christ's love did not homogenize them into like a tomato soup. Rather, it was more like chunky salsa. Believers united in non-negotiable essentials of Christianity came together. And they they were also challenged... To be generous with one another in matters of opinion. Which leads us to our text today in Romans chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Romans chapter 14. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12. You'll find that on page 948 of uh, your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please avail yourself to the copy that's in the pouch in front of you. And our text today considers this question. How does God want us to teach each other when our consciences differ in matters of opinion? And what I want to do is just simply read the text here. Romans 14, 1 through 12. And then I want to consider the history of the text. There's a background to this. Paul just didn't wake up one morning and decide to write the book of Romans. Uh, Paul wrote in response to a situation. And we get to the gist of this situation in Romans 14. So I I want to read the text. I want to consider the history of the text. And then I want us to learn some principles that apply today, especially on the issues of Opinion and conscience, opinion and conscience, all right? Now, in this text, Paul is addressing concerns in the house churches at Rome in which there was quarreling over opinions. And as we're reading, uh, we'll see that it has to do with non-kosher meat and non-kosher wine and certain Hebrew holy days. All right? So I want to set that up for you as I read. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, let me just stop right there. I don't want to turn off the vegetarians before I get started, all right? So Paul's not saying that if you're, you know, a, a vegetarian, you're just, you're just weak and sad, all right? Just, well, what does he mean then? Well, just hang on. Don't, don't leave, okay? <laughs> Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul did not start the church at Rome. Most likely, the church began as a result of Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost uh, when Jews from all over the Roman Empire came to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple, to worship. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost came, and the, the church was born. And so Jews who had come from Rome, which had quite a community. There was even quite a Jewish economy in first century Rome. These Jews came Jerusalem to worship. And then while they were there, Pentecost happened and Peter preached. And they were convinced that God's long-awaited Messiah had come in Jesus of Nazareth. And the resurrection of Jesus confirmed his status as the divine son of God. So these now Jewish Christians returned to Rome and... Christian community there was birthed. And so for nearly 20 years, the church at Rome, and by that I mean the congregations meeting in house churches, Uh, for nearly 20 years, the congregations there were monoethnic, Jewish. But in AD 49, the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Now, in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul would enter a city and go straight to the synagogue, preach Christ as uh, Israel's long awaited Messiah as prophesied, and some would believe and some would reject, and Paul would be persecuted, and there was a disturbance. And these kinds of disturbances happened enough that Claudius said, Not in my backyard. And he expelled the Jews, making no distinction between Christians and non-Christians. So if you're Jewish, get out of my city. Now, can you imagine how disruptive this would be uh, to families in Rome? And I'm thinking of like Priscilla and Aquila, who they were forced to move to Corinth because of this edict. But something else happened as well. Overnight, and I mean overnight, the church at Rome became all Gentile because the Jews had been expelled. And the Jews had been an ethnic or cultural minority in Rome, but a congregational majority, as far as the church was concerned, their expulsion meant that the Gentiles were an ethnic majority in both culture and congregation. And this occurred for almost 10 years. And the church continued to grow. The gospel continued to be proclaimed. And so when the ban was lifted, the Hebrew people, both Christians and non-Christians, returned to Rome. And on their first Sunday in worship, they see that the church has grown. And they also see that the once majority race Hebrews are now a minority race. Now, can you picture the expectations of Hebrew Christian leaders? Now they're not leading. But now they're sitting under the leadership of Gentile leaders. And maybe there was tension. Maybe there wasn't. My guess there was tension from Romans 14. You know, the church has changed. And, and then after worship at the house churches, that the house church pastor, a Gentile, says, well, let's... Eat together, and let's welcome back our Hebrew brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the Gentile Christians, they, they had their version of a potluck, and, and they brought their non-kosher meat from one of the markets in the temple, and beef and chicken, and they got some pork, and they served it to their Hebrew Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and you know then while they're eating, one of the Gentile Christians says to one of the Hebrew Christians, Brother, sister, there's a job opportunity next Saturday. And we can make some money for the poor. And the Hebrew Christian freezes. But, but, but it's Saturday. It's, it's, it's the Sabbath and to which the Gentile brother in Christ says, And? Well, well okay, then what about, what about next Wednesday? Well, yeah, but that, isn't that, isn't that the, na- the day of the new moon? And finally, the Gentile Christian says, dude, what's the matter with you? And the Hebrew Christian says, what's the matter with me? What's the matter with you? Well, nothing's the matter with me. What's the matter with you? And verse 1, quarrels, quarrels. And thus the question, how do I navigate a relationship with my brother, sister, and Christ when our consciences disagree over matters of opinion? Here's where we get to the lesson that Paul teaches in Romans 14. Paul teaches us, taught them then, and he teaches us now. Listen and learn. Listen and learn. Listen to your conscience and learn the difference between opinion and first importance. Listen and learn. Listen to your conscience. Let's talk about conscience for a moment. What is conscience? Uh, well, let me give you a definition. It comes from an excellent book I would commend to you uh, by Andrew Nasselli. It's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. Uh, I would also commend to you a book by Christopher Ashe, Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience. And you can email me for a full uh, title and where you can get that, uh, randy at randy at But here's the definition uh, from Nicelli's book Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So it's a moral thermostat. Uh, The word conscience comes from a word in the New Testament. The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and the word is a word uh, that, when you break it down, literally means uh, knowledge within or, or self knowledge or self awareness of oneself knowledge. Conscience appears. In the New Testament, about 30 times. Um, let me share with you a few of those times. 1 Timothy 1 5. In 1 Timothy 1 5, Paul says that his motives for ministry spring from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Uh, someone once said that the softest pillow is a good conscience. Uh, then there's Romans chapter 2, verse 15 which says that even without the Bible, God has written his commands on our hearts, and if we break those commands, our consciences accuse us. So you don't need the Bible to tell you that you have a conscience. You have a conscience. And Romans 2.15 says that the conscience bears witness uh, either accusing us or excusing us of God's moral law. Romans 2.15. 1 Corinthians 10.29 says that your conscience is your conscience. It's not my conscience. It's your conscience. 1 Corinthians 10.29. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And 1 Timothy 4.2 says that deceit... Is evidence of a seared conscience. First Timothy four two. Titus one five speaks of a defiled or polluted conscience, uh, and First Corinthians eight twelve says that sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, well, you sin against Christ. And then there's 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which I find very fascinating. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that just because your conscience is clean doesn't mean you're innocent of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So when you take these verses You understand that the conscience is God's gift to help us live with ourselves, to help us live with one another, and to help us glorify Christ. The conscience is a guide, a monitor, a witness, and a judge. The conscience guides us to moral standards, monitors how well we conform to them, testifies to the results, and then judges us. Pronouncing either guilt or innocence and all of the feelings that go with guilt and all of the feelings that go with innocence. Your, your conscience is an on--off switch. It's a yes-no switch. Uh, uh, it's not a dimmer switch. Your conscience really doesn't do, it's complicated. Your conscience pronounces guilt or innocence. One or the other. And it's your conscience, your conscience. That is, it's highly personal. No two people have exactly the same consciences, though they may overlap. But someone might be uh, saying, well, you know, why should we even care about what our conscience says at all? And here's why. I mean, so if you heard, that a judge accused of a crime had decided to hear his own case, you'd laugh. You know, at first he sits on the bench, he reads the charges, then he jumps down to the witness stand to defend himself, then he jumps back up to the bench to pronounce himself not guilty. You'd think, well, what a joke! And yet your conscience does this to you every single day. And it doesn't feel like a joke, does it? It's deadly serious. And people have been haunted by a guilty conscience, even to the point of suicide. Conscience can be damaged in two ways. Insensitivity or oversensitivity. Hypo or hyper. Persistent evil can render the conscience insensitive. It can numb it. It can desensitize it. And the conscience can uh, overperform, overfunction. An oversensitive conscience can plague us with guilt. You know, I'm not a good parent. I'm not a good mom. I'm a lousy father. I'm not a good employee. I'm a terrible pastor. God doesn't like me. Others don't like me. I don't like me. If you must constantly ask forgiveness repeatedly for something long, long ago, if you ruminate over past failures, if you seldom feel acceptable before God, if you beat yourself up over normal human uh, failures, if you avoid making decisions because you, you don't want to offend others that you don't even know, these are signs of an overfunctioning conscience. And one of the fascinating features of conscience is how culture affects our conscience. So Sam Louie. Uh, is a therapist uh, who um, his uh, clientele uh, in terms of who he's chosen to mainly work with are um, clients who come from a more um, Eastern culture, shame-based cultures. He writes, in shame-based cultures, public humiliation, scorn, and censure are relied upon more heavily to keep individuals in obedience, whereas the Western notion of guilt and corrective behaviors come from an individual's development of an internal conscience. So so culture affects our conscience. All this to say is that we should pay attention to our conscience. It's fascinating. It's mysterious. It's reliable, though not infallible, not infallible. And in Romans chapter 14, Christians have come to different conclusions about what their consciences are allowing them to do regarding food, drink, and holy days. And so for the Hebrew nation, Mosaic law established dietary rules as a sign of holiness among the pagan nations. God said, I want you to be separate. I want you to be distinct among the pagan nations. And here's how I want that to look. And so, a dietary, ceremonial, holiday rules and regulations were established. But in Christ, these laws have expired, the ceremonial laws. But for some of the Hebrew believers... Uh, in Rome, their consciences desire to keep those ceremonial laws. And Paul calls the conscience of such believers weak in relationship to those foods because their conscience prohibits non-kosher consumption. Now, Americans don't like the word weak, do we? Paul's point is not that these Christians themselves are weak, or childish, or immature. Rather, their conscience is weak in respect to that particular opinion. So, in other words, it's possible for a believer's conscience to be strong in one opinion and weak in another opinion. And that's what's going on in Romans chapter 14, 1 through 12. Now then, let me take a deep breath. Are you with me? Say yes. All right. Now, uh, so uh, this isn't just a history lesson. This has relevance for us today. Um, Some of you may be saying, okay, pastor, I get it. Some of the Christians back then had issues about kosher, non-kosher, uh, food and drink and holidays, et cetera, et cetera, and matters of conscience and so on and so forth. What does that have to do with us today, all right? Oh, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about matters of opinion that relate to us today. I, I have about 50 issues here. I'll not torture you with all of them, but I will, I will talk about some of them, all right? Are you sitting down? Okay, Uh watching mixed martial arts for entertainment, how to treat Sundays, listening to secular music, dressing modestly, Uh, capitalism versus socialism, fair trade coffee, global warming, Harry Potter, (laughs) a homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics, um, Body piercings, tattoos, Santa Claus, trick or treating. Uh, do I vaccinate my child or not? The square footage of my house, uh, re- reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And I haven't even gotten to the doctrinal ones such as uh, how to interpret the book of Revelation, how to interpret God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, you know, uh, is it more of a a John Calvin model or is it a Jacob Arminian model, Uh, Arminius model? Uh, How to interpret men and women's roles and men and women in ministry. How to interpret speaking in tongues. How to interpret whether or not we should have musical instruments in the worship service. How to interpret whether miracles ceased at the conclusion of the first century or is it possible that they still exist today? How to interpret the Sabbath? Uh, um, How to interpret church governance? Uh, Whether or not we should celebrate Christmas or Easter? Where in the Bible are we either commanded or prohibited from Christmas? Christmas. So, Pastor, are you canceling Christmas? <laughs> no! My conscience is weak in that area. <laughs> Plus, I like my job. Though someone with a strong conscience might say, well, you know, to me, every day's Christmas. To me, every day's Easter. Christ is risen. To me, Every day's Mother's Day. I don't need a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. I mean, they can say that really just authentically with a true heart. Now, you, you would think then, in light of these matters of opinion, that Paul's solution would be, now brothers and sisters... Hold your opinions loosely. But that's not what he says, is it? Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So God wants your conscience to be convinced in these matters. So Paul is not advocating for a mushy conscience in matters of opinion. He's saying each one should be fully convinced. Fully convinced of what? Well, God wants us to be fully convinced that what I'm committed to is A, not sinful, B, honoring to Christ, and C, the best way I can think of for me to act in this situation. So Paul makes no effort to convert the weak. He's not saying that God would love vegetarians more if they were carnivores. Someone once said, your conscience can never make a wrong thing right. But it can make a right thing wrong. And why? Because you're not fully convinced. And so these opinions, you know, um, they're not unimportant. At the same time, they're not ultimate. They're not of first importance. And your conscience is not the same as the Word of God. So if you are ever faced with a choice, obey my conscience or obey the Word of God, obey the Word of God. Obey Christ. And when you hear a voice in your heart, don't just automatically assume that God is speaking to you. Assume that it's your conscience speaking. And since no one's conscience aligns perfectly with God's will, wisdom is about constantly recalibrating the conscience to conform to the will of Christ in the company of his church. So we recalibrate our consciences by adhering to matters of first importance. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, the Apostle Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, that Christ appeared. And then Paul says, and Christ appeared, and Christ appeared, and Christ appeared, and Christ appeared, At last he appeared to me as one of untimely birth. Doctrines of first importance are such that if you take them away or if you add to them, you don't have Christianity. And uh, here are some of those. The bodily resurrection of Christ Uh, The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, That God created the heavens and the earth. That Jesus died as a substitute for us. That God rescues us, adopts and redeems us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Who was born of a virgin and suffered under Pontius Pilate that the Bible is the word of God, not man's word about God, but God's word to us, and that it is always true and never false. Now, after first service, I had three separate conversations about whether um, the biblical definition of marriage is either an opinion or a matter of first importance. And you should know that it's not a matter of opinion, not as far as what Jesus said, when he affirms Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. God's definition of marriage is a man and a woman. For a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And God's design is for sexual intimacy uh, to be between a man and a woman in marriage covenant and and. All sexual intimacy outside those boundaries are not God's design, and so we're just going to have to make a decision. And I understand church family, and we've we've had uh, seminars and teaching on um, struggling uh, with uh, gender dysphoria and struggling. Uh, with uh, issues of same-sex attraction. I I understand, and we we have compassion for the struggle. And at the same time, we deliver what we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ in these matters. And if we renounce these, it's very difficult to call ourselves Christians in any meaningful sense of the term. And this is why... I believe the Apostle Paul wrote uh, Romans 1 through 13. Um, The finest scholars over Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'm thinking of uh, Tom Schreiner in his excellent commentary and uh, Douglas Moo in his um, magisterial uh, commentary, uh, which could stop a bullet. It's that thick. He talks about how Romans 1 through 13 really are these matters of first importance where where no one is righteous before God the Jews are not righteous because they don't they've not kept the Mosaic law and the Gentiles aren't righteous because they they have not kept the law that's been etched on their hearts. I can't even keep my own standards, uh, let alone God's standards. And so no one is righteous. All are accountable. Every mouth is silenced before God, but God in his mercy has provided a righteousness through Jesus Christ, and in in Romans three and four and five and six and seven and eight, uh, Paul provides this. Uh, Paul talks about how God provides this righteousness through Jesus, and he gives the example of Abraham who believed and it was credited to him as righteousness and that we have peace with God through Jesus and death came through Adam. Life has come through Christ. And then in Romans 6, Paul speaks of the image of baptism depicting death. And life, and then he speaks of slavery, uh, leaving one master and uh, for a better master, and then the uh, image of uh, marriage, and and then sonship, and our inheritance, and and it's a struggle, but God is faithful. And then in Romans nine through eleven, Paul discusses how Israel is comprised of Gentiles and uh, uh, Hebrews, and and then in Romans twelve and thirteen. Paul impresses upon the renewed mind and a love that's committed to outdoing one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then at the conclusion of Romans 13, uh, the last verse, Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And only then do we get To the matters of opinion. Paul's point is that the matters of first importance outrank matters of opinion. And, church family, if you don't know the difference between matters of first importance and matters of opinion, then by default, everything will be of first importance to you. And you'll put matters of opinion on par with the bodily resurrection of Christ. You'll put matters of first importance, like the Trinity, on par with your opinion about tattoos. You'll put the incarnation on par with your particular interpretation of eternal security, whether Calvinism or Arminianism, or You'll make American politics a test of fellowship with your blood-brought brother and sister in Christ. And you know what's even worse than all that? You'll put what you think about yourself on par with what God thinks about you. And that would be the worst tragedy of all brothers and sisters 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 says God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything God's love is greater than what we think about ourselves God's love is greater than our feelings about ourselves God's love is greater than our shortcomings So church family, the word today is listen and learn. Listen to your conscience. If you feel guilty, ask why. You know, have I sinned against someone? Well, if so, then remember what we talked about last week, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If it's not a sin, it's issue against someone. Ask yourself, you know, is, is my conscience hypersensitive and in need of calibration by the Word of God and the people of God? So listen, and then learn. Learn between opinions and first importance. Hmm. Accept, respect, and serve one another When your conscience differs from mine. And how do we do that? Hmm. Well, look at the time. We'll have to take that question up next week. Hmm. Would you bow your heads with me? And I'd like for us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Amen.